Keith here. When I started making the first episode of, I had no experience doing podcast interviews, especially the technical side of things. It was a lot of confusing steps, setting up double enders or making do with low quality recordings on whatever app I could figure out. But it got a whole lot easier when I started using Zencaster. Made for podcasts with Zencaster, it's so easy to do everything. You and your guests log in with a browser and record studio quality sound and up to 4K video, even with an unstable connection. And it's an all-in-one deal. You don't need a lot of different tools or services. With Zencaster, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major platforms. If you've ever thought about making your own podcast, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TFEO and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story on Zencaster. Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Untrue Stories. The story you are about to hear is untrue. Untrue Stories is a sci-fi comedy drama created by Robin Johnson. When George Orwell and H.G. Wells accidentally double-book a getaway cottage, an argument about tea escalates into an eon-spanning adventure of time travel and political machinations. As the series goes on, more famous sci-fi writers appear as characters in a show that satirizes the genre while also being a sci-fi story itself. Johnson writes and produces the show and does the voice of George Orwell. The first episode, titled A Nice Cup of Tea, introduces us to Orwell and Wells. Orwell is completing his manuscript for 1984, and Wells has happened to have invented a time machine out of a bicycle. When Wells travels into the future to prove his machine works, he discovers that the future Orwell predicted in 1984 has come true and tries to set things right. I spoke to Robin remotely from his home in Edinburgh. Tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist or creator and how you got started in all this. I make a lot of things. I've only got into audio drama fairly recently as a creator. Andrew Stories is my, is my first show. I've got a much longer history as a playwright and um, theatre maker. I make these fringy plays. I call them literary satires, which uh-huh. is kind of the same genre as Untrue Stories. Right. Um, taking an existing classical work, doing a sort of parody of it in which I 
try and use the characters of the work itself to discuss its interesting flaws. Uh, so the first one of those I did was in about 2009. It was about Sherlock Holmes called Broken Holmes, um, <laughs> which was just before there was suddenly a, a massive explosion of Sherlock Holmes and there was uh, the BBC series and the Guy Ritchie films in elementary. So there was there was something something Holmesian in the air at that point. It did really well in Edinburgh, which is where I live, and it's also where there's a, a massive theatre festival in August. Sure, uh, the uh, French, right? Yes, yeah. So, so can I ask you how you got into playwriting to start with? Started with my university drama society. I would write the odd thing there and just little little sketches, and I just found I enjoyed it more than anything else. When you were a child, were you a creative type then? I don't know. I was the... I was a bit of the annoying, noisy one in class that they'd give you some exercise that I later learned was was just to try and memorize something and I'd, I'd try and make it into this epic story. You're a musician as well, right? Yes. Yeah, I play a lot of things. My favorite instrument is the mountain dulcimer. I saw one in a shop window about, I think it's about 10 years ago and bought it pretty much on a whim. Yeah. It's lovely, but I play, I don't know, a bit of guitar, a bit of piano. If I was in the other room, I could look at all the instruments and tell you them. Now, did you say you lived in Edinburgh or just yes, you? Did, yeah. Okay, yeah. Many years ago, I came to Scotland and we did Edinburgh to Perthshire and then we went up to the Highlands and then we ended up back in Inverness and, and then we took the train to London. I remember music was always kind of central to these little towns, these little communities all over Scotland. Yeah. I go busking in the park still on some some days. I think if I did it every day, I could just about live on the money, but it's not about the money. It's about the relaxation and, and just seeing and playing and doing nothing else for a couple of hours. It's really nice. Yeah. You were in the drama society at university and then you started writing these plays. How did you then make the transition into audio drama? A lot of people told me that my plays would work for radio because um, we still have radio dramas in the in the UK. And I didn't listen. I think I might have once or, once or twice sent a couple of scripts to, to some studios and, and not heard back. But uh, when the when the pandemic hit, so suddenly I couldn't do in-person drama. Right. I've always liked listening to um, radio dramas and, and sitcoms. Uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is my favourite thing ever. So I thought I can make one of those. The very first episode... I, I think some of it's ended up being re-recorded and the first couple of episodes were just, I was just like posting on Facebook saying, I'm, I'm going to make a, an audio play, who's in? And I just let any of my friends mm-hmm. turn in, have, you know, laptop mics, phones. So the, the, the audio quality of those episodes, it's maybe improved a little, but it's, it's iffy and that's fine. Yeah, and I had this idea that I'd keep making these, like my plays, I'd do a short piece on yeah, one work of fiction and then move on to another. 1984 is one of my favorite novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Time Machine is, is is a favorite, and they're both interesting, and they're both really hard to do on stage, I think, especially on, on the kind of budget I've got. <laughs> but as soon as you're in audio, you can you can do anything. You can go anywhere as long as there's a noise. You can, do, you can have time travel. You can have robots. You can have creepy caves in the far future. You can have Morlocks. So suddenly these whole worlds open up. I particularly like the sort of surreal comedy sci-fi is, is the genre that I was going for here. And I think that works quite uniquely in audio. Going, mm-hmm. going back to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that's a brilliant example because the plot can just go anywhere the creator's mind can go. 
what is Untrue Stories? We know that it's sort of a parody, as you've talked about, and it, it's about George Orwell and H.G. Wells meeting and getting into adventures together. What do you think of when you think about this show? What does this show mean to you? Orwell has always been a, one of my sort of writing heroes. He certainly has flaws, which I should address on the show more than I have, I think, and plan to yeah. in the next season. From his writing, he's he's always on the side of the working class. He's politically a misfit. He sees everything clearly in a way that, that makes life difficult for him. And at the same time, and this is what I think makes him an interesting character, is he's, he is quite curmudgeonly and fuddy-duddy and very yeah. very sort of tweedy and British, which is at conflict with, with these left-wing values. H.G. Wells I know less about, but he just seemed like a nice foil to Orwell. I'd wanted separately to write about these two characters, and then I thought, okay, why not Why not put them together? And then yeah. you have this sort of Burton and Ernie relationship. <laughs> I like that, Burton and Ernie. Perfect. No distractions, no London socialites, no annoying fellow writers who think they know it all and actually they're wrong about everything and I know it all. Hello. In you come, Mr. Wells. What's, What's he, he doing, doing here? M- Mr. Wells? This is Mr. George Orwell. He's a, a dreadful, big-footed, Trotskyist hack. We've met. And, uh, Mr. Orwell, this is Mr. H.G. Wells, who's... An archaic, techno-pacifist, utopian dinosaur. I'm acquainted with Mr. Wells. What's happening? I thought I'd rented a remote cottage to complete my groundbreaking work of science, I mean political fiction, undisturbed. And I thought I'd rented it to finish work on my important secret engineering project. How I'm supposed to do that with this lanky Bolshevik clumping around? Gentlemen, I'm sorry you've got the wrong idea, but you've rented half the cottage each. It's a button bin. Two rooms. Now I'll leave you to sort out between yourselves who's going to get the bin and who's in the butt. Yes, yes, we'll have to make do. Fine. You two enjoy yourselves. They actually were public figures that did sort of debate yeah. with each other publicly. Uh, they, in had, the they had a row at a dinner party in, oh, I couldn't tell you the year, in, in the 1940s sometime. And Wells called Orwell that dreadful Trotskyist with the big feet. And Orwell, Orwell wrote a whole essay about how Wells was a, a blinkered pacifist. He really couldn't see how serious a threat Hitler was, which might have been true, because Wells just had a lot of faith that, you know, technology would advance and, and then... Something would happen and fascism would be obsolete. And they almost came to blows at a dinner party. And I think that's the only time they met in real life. They do seem like they're well-suited as foils for a storytelling. Yeah. And since they both did indeed write in science fiction or speculative fiction, then that seems to suit the theme really well. Um, I, and I, I think you've got a good handle on a couple of characters who are interesting in their own right, but then also can have a lot of conflict between themselves. The story is about time travel. It's also a bit about the power of science fiction, I think. We meet George Orwell, who has rented a room in a a remote Scottish cottage to work on 1984, his story. And he discovers that he's rooming with H.G. Wells. uh, And the two of them immediately get into a row and they don't get along. Orwell has almost finished 1984. But what I think is really funny is that this version of 1984 is not our version of 1984. 
the version of 1984 that Orwell has written in your story is a prediction of the 80s, that it is exactly like we remember the 80s, full of commercialism and clothes with big shoulder pads and Rubik's Cubes, you know, and, and all that kind of thing. It's not like the Big Brother and the yeah. sort of the, the depersonalization dystopia we as the audience are familiar with. Is that the manuscript? It's not really ready. Go on, give us a peek. Wait a minute. Oh, come on. I'll not laugh. I'll never know if you got it wrong. I'll be long dead by the 1980s. Let's have a wee read. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the radio was playing glam rock. Winston Smith adjusted his aviator sunglasses as he drove his convertible past the bowling alley. That's the future, Mrs. Watchit. A society driven by greed, shallowness, conspicuous consumerism, and ridiculous clothing fads. Chilling, isn't it? As it turns out, because he wrote it that particular way, then the dystopian future that he that we know he wrote about actually comes true. People say, oh, we don't want to end up being a consumerist 80s society. We're going to do something different. And we ended up creating the actual dystopian that, that we know well. And then Wells has invented a time machine, just like characters did in his stories, mm -hmm. which is a bicycle, which I think is, again, very funny. And Wells goes off into the future and attempts to change things back the way they were. Later in the series, we begin to meet other sci-fi authors. They become a recurring kind of uh, motif. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, why did you want to start your story with these two in particular? As, as I said, I think, I think they made a good sort of bickering roomies couple. The joke about Orwell predicting the, the real 80s is yeah. one of the first ideas that I had for this. And then if you if you add Wells, it's just sort of become a thing in parody fiction that Wells can time travel. And Wells really liked bicycles as well. And so did Orwell. So I just thought, make the time machine a bicycle. There's a whole section in the first episode where they argue over tea. And, and yeah. I actually looked this up. Apparently, Orwell had some very strong opinions about how to make a proper cup of tea. He did. I, I genuinely love that, like, while he was writing all this, all this stuff about what's wrong with the world and how can we stop Britain from descending into fascism, he was also deeply concerned that people were making their tea wrong. <laughs> I think that almost sort of summarizes him as, as the kind of character that, that I put down as. And Wells just drives me as sort of too tearful to, to, to care about that much about tea. If it's, if it's hot and wet, it's fine. Yeah. Look here, you idealistic antique. There are 11 rules to making a nice cup of tea, and they are all golden. Didn't you read my essay on the subject in the Evening Standard? Let's assume I'm one of the small number of people who didn't get round to it. This Liquid is in clear violation of rule one, rule two, rule three, rule... F Amazing, it's all of them. You've got zero out of eleven. I think that's the first time I've seen a zero. Oh my goodness. Are you the tea police now? It's a very funny sequence. Not only... I mean, and the thing is, is you, you sort of really took... Or Orwell's rules for making tea, literally as he wrote them, but then you sort of expand on it and it becomes sort of part of the story. Not only was it funny, but it was a clever way to sort of set the plot in motion. Yeah, that's just honestly, I just put them in a room and listened to them and they did that in my head. I really like what you just said, and I, I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit more, because I also sometimes make writing experiments where it's just like, put the characters together in your imagination and then let them talk. And talk to me about your process. Once I know enough about the characters to the point where, without particularly even consciously thinking about it, my brain just knows I'm just kind of simulating them, and mm -hmm. I write down what they say, that's... Yeah. 
the zenith. That's what I aim for. I'm, I'm not always there, but that that's where I love being. That's the the most enjoyable part of writing for me. Yeah, it, it takes a while sometimes for me to get into that space, you know. Mm. But then when you get there, really all you have to do is just pay attention in your to your imagination. And then I'm less a writer at that moment. I'm more like a stenographer, or I'm just transcribing. You know? Yes, that's of course you're a writer. That's that's that stuff is all going on in your brain, but it feels effortless. Right. It it is it is your imagination, but it feels like you're not in you're not having to get in the way of it, right? And you don't have to think about it, it just comes. When you started working on this, did you have the whole arc together or you just like, I'm gonna put these two in a room and see what happens and then go from there? I think I think I had it about as far as episode two, which is where they discover that the um, the book has caused the the actual dystopian 1984 to happen, and and then I thought I'll see where it goes from there. There was a big gap, I think, a year or more between the production of episodes three and four, and that's when it turned more to being about sci-fi in general, and it brought in some other other sci-fi authors. Wells has tried to change the past back by swapping around Orwell's manuscripts because they know that whatever goes to the publisher in 1948 is what won't happen and at this point Orwell has kind of become the the antagonist and is saying well I want there to be a dictatorship with me in charge and he's (laughs) ganging up with a bunch of other famous dystopia authors so there's there's Margaret Atwood, uh, Ray Bradbury, um, Albert Huxley and Evgeny Zamyatin uh, and they plot to take over the world uh, using time travel. This is one of the things I really love about your show is not only do you get to meet these sci-fi authors as characters, but you also get to see kind of their viewpoint stretched large. You take their kind of core ideas about the future and it's like, what if that really happened? What would that look like? And you kind of make fun of that. But it also, to me, suggests that in Untrue Stories, the sci-fi authors actually have the power to shape the future, that what they write then becomes what the future is. Was that kind of your intention? Do you believe that science fiction has this ability to guide us and, and shape our thoughts? It might have been Ray Bradbury. I can't remember. One of the big sci-fi authors said that science fiction writers are like scouts, which is you sort of write some speculation as if you're kind of going one direction into the future and saying, oh, actually, this is what lies in this direction. We don't want to go over here. But then I also quite like the idea that these dystopian authors would rather say, I told you so. So once they've got access to time travel, they're they're trying to make the world into these, to match their terrible predictions. Orwell was kind of a pessimist and he really didn't feel like the future was going to be a great place. Yeah. Wells was a was a utopian. He thought that science would save us, would elevate humanity down the road. Orwell was like, no, nah, that's you put too much faith in that. I'm curious as to where you fall. I, d- I don't think science and technology will do it on its own. I think we're seeing that. How so? Well, the, the AI creation at the moment, I think, is it, that that's another one of Orwell's predictions coming true, is one of the ones that seemed less likely to come true and seemed more like a, a piece of, of satire than a, than a piece of actual technological prediction was the, the Versificator, which is a machine for writing novels uh, that just generates trash. And that is GPT-3. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I haven't tried four yet, but I don't think it's much better. So it's, I think it's interesting the little things he got right. The, the ballpoint pen was another one. <laughs> and then the, I think he was also right about the 
sort of increasingly fascist attitudes. He was wrong that they would come from state control, as it turned out. Mm. But I think we see a lot of the the sort of psychology uh, that he writes about. Well, you know, here in the United States, we just had a march of you know, white supremacists in our capital. But there's not, you know, the government aren't telling them to go there. There's just something right. nasty in humanity that's not not being addressed. Wells would argue that with sufficient technology, we would eventually overcome this sort of nastiness that we have inside us. But Wells strikes yeah. me as someone just says that that's going to be a hard fight. That's not gonna it is going to be a hard fight. I do, Things do get better in the long run, if you look at it. That's not much. You know, that's not much consolation to people that are on the on the end of it today. So I do I do believe things gradually get better. What responsibilities do you feel, if any, about using real people as characters? I don't feel like I'm insulting their memory or their, their grandchildren are going to be mad at me, if that's what you mean. I, I do feel I have a bit of a duty to not rose tint them. And for all the flaws in my Orwell, I haven't succeeded at that. In particular, he was homophobic. I regret not having addressed that in the first season. Wells, I know less about, but I'm I'm also portraying him more positively. Then when I bring in other, other science fiction authors, I, I try to make them match the impression of them that I get from their books. Your listeners know up front that this is not a biography, but this is a parody. Yeah, I think that's then, clear enough. Then yeah. it's, about, it's about capturing the essence of them in their works, I think, or at least the way they were publicly represented. It's not about these real people. It's about their, the, way, the way they, they look at the world as seen through their, their works. Yes. I mean, that's, that's all I've got to see them with, I think. Orwell in particular was very good at putting his opinions down on paper. So I think if you, and I've, I've read a, a lot of his nonfiction as well, and I think he committed a lot of his mind to, in, into his words. So it's, yeah. his, his, his outlook is very well preserved. Uh, I'm yeah. not saying I've represented it perfectly because I've not. But um, yeah, it's more like a, they're, they're not representative of themselves. They're representative mm-hmm. of a point of view or an ideology, I think. And I think that's an interesting way to tell stories, you know, especially because stories throughout history have always sort of many of them have taken characters which are clearly representing certain viewpoints or certain beliefs. And uh, I think it works here, especially in a parody situation where you're kind of poking fun at things and using these perspectives to poke fun at them. Now, you mentioned a new season. That's not out yet, right? It's coming though, right? No, it's not. I decided I would write it all at once. It's getting more more science fiction-y. There's more sort of space opera style sci-fi in it. There's more um, history switching hijinks. How has the show evolved even over the course of season one? Because you, you told me there was a year between uh, episodes yeah. two and three. How, how has the show evolved over the course of season one and now into season two? What has changed? Uh, there's more characters. Episode one is pretty much only Wells and Orwell having an argument in a house. I learned more about audio drama production. You can certainly hear the difference in the in the production values between the first and the and the last episodes there. And I think I just kind of found my feet as to where it was going as a story into this sort of absurd time travel romp, rather than it being completely about the works of these two authors. It's become it's become about science fiction in general. So I think it possibly started with a story about science fiction and it's now a science fiction story, which is still about science fiction and in, in which the main characters are still sci-fi writers. What do you struggle with? I can have great trouble just deciding to sit down and, and write. I've got better at that. How do you get past that? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, once, once I'm into it, I'm into it. 
I did find that writing completely sequentially helped. I think if I had tried to write a two or three hour play about these characters, it would have taken me years. Uh, but because I was writing, you know, 15 to 30 minutes at a time, the first episode was already out. I can't go back and change anything. I've just got this bit to concentrate on. That helps a lot. I'm trying to set myself that as a constraint for writing season two without actually producing between the episodes. And that's, that helped. It can be a real challenge sometimes for me. Like I'll say to myself, okay, I've got 30 to 45 minutes here of, of time. Look, I should probably work on writing something. And sometimes it's just really hard to get yourself into that space. You know, your brain finds lots of reasons not to, whether it's doing something else or talking yourself out of it. Like, well, what can you really do in 30 minutes? By the time you get into the zone, it'll be over, you know. And yeah. You, you've got to trick yourself sometimes, I think, you know. Um, I've got a space that I just, I do nothing but I do writing in. And so if when I go and sit in that space, my brain's like, oh, we must must be time to write. It doesn't always work, but it, mm. it helps, you know. But you're right. It can be a real challenge, especially if it's like the end of the day and you've been working all day and you're tired and, you know. Yeah, I'm doing most of my writing at the, at the weekends now. Um, yeah. But I can't, I can't do that. I can't say, oh, I've got 30 minutes to write. I have to have, I have, to have three hours to write. And, you know, and I'll have written something by 30 minutes. So clearly I could have done that. And I wish I could right. tell my brain to do that, but it's, yeah. it's not going to do it. What brought you back for season two? What motivates you to keep going? I've discovered that I should have been writing audio all along. One of the first plays I ever wrote completely by myself. I had a rehearsed reading at a young playwrights festival in Nottingham years and years ago. And one of the actors came up to me afterwards and said, I think this would be a really good radio play. You should write for radio. And I didn't bloody listen. And now it's 20 years later <laughs> and I've started writing for audio. And it's the most fun I've had writing. So I just want to keep doing that. You kind of jumped in and started making uh, untrue stories out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Just kind of did it. So I'm curious, is there anything you wish you had known about making audio drama before you got into it that you know now? I wish I'd just known more of the, the technical stuff, you know, what room tone is, how to how to make a scene sound real, what mm. what sound levels to, to make things, what is the minimum amount of, of hardware that you need to insist your actors have. I wish I had been better at communicating two ways with the cast sometimes. Um, I found the audio drama making community and that's been a, a huge help. And I kind of wish I'd looked around and listened in there before before diving in. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that's how my brain works. I just want to do the thing. What's next for you? I'm working on a show called Submitted for the Approval of the Midnight Pals, which mm -hmm. is based on a Twitter account called Midnight Pals. I happen to know the creator of that show because we both make interactive fiction games. Yeah, we did a crossover with Untrue Stories, which is which is how it started. Midnight Pals is a sort of parody of a particular 90s teen anthology horror show called Are You Afraid of the Dark? In that show, there's this group of cool teens who call themselves the Midnight Society, and they, they meet around a campfire every week. They're the framing device. One of them tells a story, and that's the episode of the week, which is a sort of surreal horror story, usually about one kid getting peer pressured into exploring a spooky house or something by his cool older brother. And uh, Corella, who's the, the creator of, of Midnight Pals, started to write this on Twitter as conversations between real horror authors, uh, living and dead. 
Uh, so the main characters are uh, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Dean Koontz, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, and Mary Shelley. Most of them are sort of anthology episodes with, with those characters having a bit an argument in the frame and then a, a parody episode. So I get to do my uh, literary parody thing again. Uh, we've got the whole first season written. We're recording one episode a month. We're hoping to launch in late 2023. How do you measure success? I don't know. I'm not sure I do, to be honest. I wanted to make the thing. I made the thing. One tip that I read on some podcasting group was, if you're disappointed about your numbers, remember why you started making your show in the first place. Hmm. It probably wasn't to get, you know, N plus one thousand listeners. The number of listeners that we've had is modest, but if that many listeners came to a Fringe play, I would be overwhelmed. So, So there's that. I don't know, as long as I'm making people laugh, I get good feedback. I'm proud of proud of having made it. It was just, yeah, it's just been really fun to make, to be honest. The biggest driver for making it has been how much fun it is. Would you say you're the only person in the world who can make a cup of tea as good as this one? That is dishearteningly probable. Give me your cup. What? Your tea. Nobody else could make a proper cup of tea like you, right? I mean, if I tried to replace your tea with one I'd made, you'd notice at once. Before it got past the moustache. So, if I return here in a week's time with this perfect cup of tea, and it's still warm... You can't trick me, Wells. I can tell if it's been reboiled. No reboiling. And a thermos flask leaves a distinctive glassy texture. No thermos flasks. The bicycle's already capable of short trips. I will take it out there and I will travel through time seven days into the future. And if I come to you just as I am this time next week with this cup of tea, and if it's the same cup and it's still warm, there can only be one of two explanations. Either your tea-making skills are not as unique as you think they are, or the time machine works. You're on. I know it's a sham, but at least I get peace and quiet for a week. Sci-fi fans, particularly ones familiar with classic authors and their works, will find plenty to laugh at in Untrue Stories. As the series progresses, the storyline becomes more complicated and zanier, but it always is told in a charming, lighthearted way. Perfect for listening over a nice cup of tea. You can hear Untrue Stories on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well... I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, 
and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.